So many of our myths talk about Cunla's well, a supernatural well found beneath the Atlantic Ocean off the west coast of Ireland that has bubbles of pure wisdom and enlightenment rippling up through it. Around the well are a number of hazel trees whose hazelnuts fall into the water in the form of these bubbles of infinite knowledge. The Bradon Fassa, the salmon of knowledge, gained his wisdom by swimming down the length of the Shannon River, or the Urn, or the Boyne, and then through the Atlantic Ocean to reach Cunna's well down below. The well was considered the power source at the centre of Tirnanog, a classic mythic trope, a bubbling well that is the source of wisdom, rejuvenation and connection to the infinite. It's all make-believe. Or at least, that's what I thought until I met Robert Meehan, a consultant geologist, who said he's often seen underground springs bubbling up through the Atlantic off the west coast of Ireland. Back in the mid-1990s, he was working for Geological Survey Ireland, conducting onshore dye-tracing experiments, where you inject dye into a shallow hole and monitor springs in the vicinity to see which way the underground rivers travel. He was doing this in the area around Ballyvahan in County Clare. One day, he said they happily injected dye into a swallow hole, hoping it would emerge the following day or two in a certain spring locality. Only to wake up the following morning and see the bay at Blackhead in County Clare a translucent green. It had followed the same subterranean pathways as Umbradan Fassa. On a calm day, if you're in a boat off the coast of County Clare or Kerry or Galway, you might easily see faint signs of Cunla's well bubbling up through the ocean. The big question, though, is if you did manage to swallow one of these bubbles and not retch from the seawater, would you too gain enlightenment? Anyway, welcome to the Almanac of Ireland, a collection of intriguing and entrancing stories from all over the country. And for this edition of the Almanac of Ireland, we're going to look at gates, wrought iron gates. There's a gate. They've been a particular obsession of mine for decades now, especially the rusted old field gates you see abandoned in hedgerows. The principal characteristic of wrought iron gates is that they were made by blacksmiths, handmade by beating out metal, long before the age of stainless steel or aluminium. They look truly ancient, like straight out of the Iron Age. Although actually most are from the 19th century up to the mid-20th century. Entangled within them is a surprising amount of culture and history and insights into our past relationship with the land. In Ireland, the most knowledgeable person about them is an artist, sculptor and community activist from Thomastown, County Kilkenny, called Shem Caulfield. Yeah, so... It is this beautiful sunny day and we've arrived in Thomastown, County Kilkenny. And like only in Kilkenny do they do, it's parked in a local car park, but it's just full of the most gorgeous cottage flowers, like we're in some little cottage garden uh, with bumblebees eating them and wild grasses and purple flowers. I came across research he had done on them for the Heritage Council years ago and I've wanted to meet him ever since. 
So finally, I headed down to Kilkenny, where he lives in a cosy, rambling, cutstone cottage on the banks of the Nor River in Thomastown. How are you? With those gates, I presume you must be Shem. I am, yeah. Man Khan. Oh, great to see you. Nice to meet you. His handcrafted home with intriguing outbuildings hints at the fact that he's interested in things people often overlook. Would you like a cup of tea? I'm good for the moment. We, we, yeah, yeah but, uh, whatever you like. He clearly values craft and the traditional skills that have always been a part of rural life. Yeah, I set up some stuff in the studio just to show you what I'm about. We got straight down to talking about field gates and the piers on which they hang. I've had an interest for a long, long time in the vernacular heritage, if you like, of wrought iron gates. Mm. So I've been uh, tracking them and uh, studying them throughout the country. Uh, they're extremely valuable as a heritage and landscape item in themselves. Uh, and I can you know, kind of link into the social sort of history of our country through those gates. Mm. You know, I travelled a bit up in, up in the northwest of the States, up into Vancouver and that. And um, when you see totem poles outside villages, I kind of understand gates and their sets of piers as an Irish totem pole of telling the story. And there's a huge story in it. Ireland's field gates and piers are our totem poles. Now that's what you come to the Almanac of Ireland for. Like we don't do hot takes here, we don't need to. So tell us the story, Shem. Tell us the story that is invested within one of these old gates. A spoiler alert, it's about land reform and how in the 19th century a series of enlightened land acts finally enabled impoverished tenant farmers who had managed to survive the famine to secure tenure of their own piece of land. At long last, they were working for themselves as opposed to working for some obnoxious, disinterested, absentee landlord. They fenced in their plot and began to care for it. The gates and their heavy stone piers were symbols of so much. Invested in those things is that language of, you know, setting out of enterprise, of the new new way. And a man or a woman or a farm builds two piers and puts a gate on it. We're here, and this is what we're about. We're going to do good husbandry here, proper entrance instead of bedstead or a sheet of galvanised. That's why you're saying it's like the Wild West in America. It was almost yeah. a statement. I, these are the limits of my land. This is where I'm going to look after nature yeah. and raise my family. And it spoke to of hard work. It spoke to honesty and integrity. And that's how design works. And that's how these totems work as well, you know, that that sort of discourse occurs outside of our consciousness, if you like. Mm-hmm. And the vernacular bit is important as well. We didn't have or suffer the great industrial revolution that England had. Our industrial revolution was at the crossroads, if you like. And through my investigations of what uh, blacksmiths were at, they were integral to life in rural Ireland in terms of manufacturing, making, repairing. At every crossroads, there was a blacksmith, a forge. And they had their own particular uh, vernacular style that sometimes is reflected in the gate. So if you were like dropped, if you, if you were dropped down by a helicopter in the middle of the, uh, some part in the island, by looking at the gates, you could tell where you were roughly? 
Uh, well, uh, I'd give a good guess. Now, I wouldn't... I don't think of doing that to me now. But <laughs> <laughs> because I'd know if it was in Monaghan, I'd know if it was in um, uh, Offaly, I'd know certainly if it was in the Burren, and I'd know around here as well. So they're not universal in each county, but you can see that a style developed around a particular solution. You like, know. A, like, a, like a dialect in a language. Absolutely. But then you had travelling blacksmiths who brought... Uh, certain skill sets and uh, the movement of ideas through the travelling blacksmith is another interesting thing you know oh, I remember that, that's remind me of the like the travelling folk musician the trad musician bringing yes. the yeah the West Clare music to Calvin yeah, or somewhere yeah, else yeah, yeah. and so then you get a new form of reel or something yeah 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 Oh, I love that notion of styles of gates being local to each area. Like how pasta dishes can be specific to particular regions of Italy. And then the wandering troubadour blacksmiths mixing it all up, bringing with them different styles and innovations. There's a richness of character to these field gates that is in contrast to the more formal and conservative gates of the big houses, which often seem to be mimicking the grand estates of Britain. These more elaborate and ornate gates tend to be older than our field gates, as Shem explains. I, I was often thinking about this, and which is really, really interesting, going back to 1798 and leading up to that rebellion. And... Uh, an interesting thing occurred. You had the estate, and it had its double gate at the front. Now, its wall might have been six foot, easy to get over, but the gate was the statement. And what some of the bios were doing, which is really, really clever, and it worked on a psychological thing, is get 20 fellas of a night, take down one half the gate, run off with it, and bury it. So when the master wakes up, half the gate is missing. Now, it's only half a gate, you know, and people can get in over the wall, but psychologically, very powerful. And to look at at that gate, I just thought it was really clever. That's how to put the frighteners up anybody. Your security is really threatened here, and we can show it by, you know, taking away that gate. It's an incredible thing. I can imagine myself if half that gate was missing. It's kind of, you're walking on one leg, you know? It's yeah. another. It's another example of what you were saying that a gate is far more than a gate. Yeah, it communicates yeah. a lot. Yeah, absolutely. The yeah. absence of it does more. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you move further, and, and like I'm, sometimes suffer from being a sort of metaphysician, <laughs> you know, uh, of gates and the liminal sort of space. I've just been in, like in there between those, leaning on that gate, on the outside, opening it and moving it, and moving into the enclosed space. So when you open that gate, you're opening up an enclosed space into another. That liminal space that gates offer, that threshold between one space and another, very powerful. And to me, it's kind of full and rich with that sort of texture of, of life. It's like anything, like a piece of art, work of art. If you spend your time with a gate, it'll tell you its story. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Oh. Yeah. 
God, what, it's cut hay, isn't it? Sweet hay. It is sweet hay. God, you nearly eat that yourself. I thought I had a good sense of field gates, but now I realised I had barely scratched the surface. They do so much more than just let you in and out of an entrance. They are communicating with your neighbours. They are status symbols, representing oppression, possession and freedom. But enough theorising. I was keen now to get out and see some local gates and hear their stories. So Shem, you've, we brought us down a narrow laneway. I think we've come away from the Nor River, have we? Where are we now? Uh, the Nor River has two fields down there. Hmm. We're on the hills uh, yeah, in the hinterland of the, of the river. And the gate is impressive. First, the two piers on both sides are massive. The piers are the gateposts, the structure on which the gate hangs. They're both yeah. like a metre wide, which you'd think maybe if it was going into a big country estate. And then the gate is really tall. The gate is, is my height. It's six feet high. It's two metres right. tall. And the metal bars, like we now think of it, you know, a small flimsy old gate. These are phenomenal, heavy, thick things. Substantial. Yeah. So, and it's, but it's not the biggest gate going into an estate or anything. It's just no, a... No, no, it's a, a farm field gate. Yeah, vernacular field gate. And a lot of thought has gone into the design and crafting of this gate. It's composed of many elements, each of which has its own name and function. This bar here is called the hanging style. The hanging style is the vertical edge with the hinges on it. And the bit that hits into the ground here is called the pintail, and the pintail, pintail hole. And even the position and the shape of the horizontal bars, all seven of them, have been thought through. As the ascend come up, the bottom ones are closer together. These are dog bars, or chicken bars, and they're keeping small animals, dogs, etc., out from the field. Useful also in yards, in farmers' yards, for keeping chickens in and that sort of stuff. And to bring these elements together, the maker used different welding methods to ensure they harmonise and work together. But the very way these elements are designed and composed is a clue to who made the gate and where. It's like a musical composition that contains the signature style and fingerprint of its creator. This gate, Shem tells me, is from the Lee Forge that used to be in this area. How do you know it was made? It's like, it looks, looks like just an, any old, old rusty gate. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that are distinctive. This uh, shape, the almost heart shape here on the on latch, the latch yeah. is distinctive. The latch, the bit where you loop your fingers through to open the bolt, needs only to be functional. But this one is an elegant oval shape, pleasant to grasp and easy on the eye. It's like a discreet flourish left by the craftsman, the equivalent of a signature on the bottom corner of a painting. How does that slide now? Lovely. It's so tactile, like you want to touch it. Yeah. You want to... Um, just, just like what Steve Jobs and Apple were doing, you know, yeah. making these items that they're expensive. This is a luxury. No one needed a gate, I suppose, a wrought iron gate. So it was always yeah. going to be a slightly luxury item. Yeah, yeah. So you need to make it beautiful. And as you, as you were saying earlier on, this is a substantial gate. And it's into a field with two very substantial piers. And if we go back to what we spoke about earlier on as the iconic totem pole of the farm is here. And I'd uh, like to think that this is a statement piece as well in terms of the psyche of the new country that I'm investing here. I'm here and we're here to stay. This is commitment. 
It has all that about it, you know. You can read it in all sorts of ways. Where I live in Westmead, the most elegant gates, I cycle around the whole area around west of Mullingar, or east of Mullingar, the most elegant gates are Michael O'Leary's gates. Like the really? effort he's gone. You can even spot a field that's quite away from his house. Yeah. It must be his because he's put, they're, they're all wooden gates, but painted. Yeah. Or no, they're yeah. metal. They're not cast. They're not wrought iron. Yeah, yeah. But the man is obviously making a statement. So there you have it. Are any of you more interested in gates now? Or have I just bored the pants off you? You'll accept at least that there's great heritage within them. And like with so many elements of our tradition, it's not too late to save them. They're still there, mostly lying idle in the bottom of ditches. So are we going to pull them out, rush them down, repair any breaks and maybe repaint them? It's up to all of us. Most of us buy at least one gate in our lifetime. Do we choose some rubbishy, throwaway bit of moulded metal, plastic or wood? Or do we decide to adopt an old wrought iron gate and undertake to care for it for the length of our lives and then hand it on to the next generation? I don't want to be telling you what to do or anything, but... The Almanac of Ireland is a Red Hair Media production. It was presented by me, Monaghan McGann, and produced by Colette Kinsella. The series was partially funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. <laughs>